0: than two decades ago, the term skills gap entered the national conversation as employers and educators began to grapple with the disconnect, both real and perceived, between employers' changing demands and the skills of American workers. In bad economies and good, millions of jobs go unfilled due to a shortage of qualified workers, while millions of discouraged workers drop out of the labor force because their skills are no longer relevant. In trying to bridge this gap, policy experts, educators, and employers have focused on increasing certifications and degrees in so-called STEM occupations, science, technology, engineering, and math. Everyone, from successive presidents to state governors to educators, have been unified in their calls for expanding this type of education as essential to the nation's economic future. Current and projected labor market demands suggest that this emphasis on STEM education may be overdone. STEM occupations represent a small portion of the overall labor market. Moreover, surveys of business leaders and human resource directors suggest that the real skills gap is in the domain of interpersonal skills like communication, teamwork, and creativity. These go by various names, including soft skills, implicit skills, and noncognitive skills. Of the 10 qualities most sought by Google hiring managers, just two relate to areas of technical skill, while the rest were soft or implicit skills. So if more of the same in terms of STEM education and training won't fix our true skills gap problem, what will? We're going to look at an aspect of this challenge with today's guest, Ryan Patrick Hanley, a professor of political science at Boston College. Dr. Hanley is the author of a number of books on the life and work of the 18th century moral philosopher, Adam Smith, a thinker best known for The Wealth of Nations, the great treatise credited as the founding document of market economics. Dr. Hanley's new book, Our Great Purpose, Adam Smith on Living a Better Life, is a study of Smith's other major and some would say more important book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Its contents help us understand that free societies and economies are two flowers with the same root, namely the social nature of human beings. Ryan Hanley, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks very much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And you've written a a really wonderful book, which I consumed over the last week. And even though it's a short book, it requires a lot of attention and thought. As we were discussing earlier, I appreciate the shortness of the chapters (laughs) because it's an encouragement. It keeps me going. So I want to get into those themes shortly, but I wonder if you could start by giving us a brief overview of Adam Smith himself. Who was he? When did he live? What's his legacy? Why is he important?
1: Sure. Smith is the author in 1776 of The Wealth of Nations. But his career started much earlier than that. He lived in Scotland in the 18th century, led a relatively uneventful life by today's standards, a quiet life, never married, no children, sort of the bachelor philosopher existence. He came to be known to the world, not through the wealth of nations, but really through his first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And so this book was published in 1759, and it was an outgrowth of how Smith was then making his living. He was a college professor. Smith taught at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, his alma mater, and he occupied the chair of moral philosophy there. And I mention that because I think it's the important side of his background for us to keep in mind that his work on economics at a time when economics as a discipline didn't exist was an outgrowth of his work and his background as a moral philosopher and today in an age in which these are housed in different departments and are often thought of as very separate sciences for smith they were two parts of the same enterprise and i think that's important for us to remember even though he wrote one book in moral philosophy and one book in economics these are all part of a unified system and so Smith's legacy has tended to be more on one side than the other. But in recent decades, people have picked up on this other side of Smith the man, Smith the moral philosopher, and people are buying and reading happily the theory of moral sentiments. And it's that side that I wanted to
0: try to continue to recover in my own work. Okay. So thank you. That was a great summary of Adam Smith and his life and work. I want to read for you a line from Smith's writing that you're going to recognize immediately. And I'd like you to tell us which book it's from. And then I'd like you to unpack the so-called Adam Smith problem that it represents. Because as you noted, he wrote The Wealth of Nations, which is his dominant work. And then he wrote, in the public mind, the dominant work. But in his own life, *Theory of moral sentiments. So I'll read this first sentence from the book. How selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortunes of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. I think that most people, when they think of Adam Smith, do not think of that.
1: Yes, I love this line. It's the first line of the theory of moral sentiments. So, if you study classical philosophy, you've run into... There's a line that's said about Socrates that the beginning is more than half the whole. And I think that captures here because more than half of the entire argument of the theory of moral sentiments comes out in this one first short line. And it's a beautiful line. And it's a line that's really important to have in mind precisely, as you mentioned, when we think of Adam Smith, father of economics and the champion of the invisible hand of the wealth of nations. So what does Smith tell us in this first line? What's he trying to communicate to his audience? How selfish soever man may be supposed. Well, he's beginning by, to some degree, granting. There is a certain self-interestedness that is central to human nature, inescapable for human nature, and not necessarily a bad thing. At the same time, that's not all there is. And so this is why putting the theory of moral sentiments and this sentence next to the wealth of nations is so important. Because as Smith goes on, even in this first sentence, he reminds us, for all that... For all this self interest, let's leave that to the side for now. There are evidently some principles, sort of like Jefferson, another famous man from 1776. Self evident. It doesn't even require an argument. Smith is simply positing that, in addition to self interest, it's also true that we have this other side. And this other side, he presents it something as the counter to self interest, but it's an interest in the fortunes of others. However hardwired we might be to be thinking about ourselves and our own well-being, we also are hardwired, to use the colloquial language of today, to think about and to care about the fortunes of others. So that's a rebuke to anybody who would say human beings are simply self-interested through and through and only self-interested. Which is sort of the common conception of of Smith's overarching philosophy. Absolutely. On sort of a caricature of I mentioned in the in my book I'm old enough to remember the Michael Douglas movie Wall Street and Gordon Gekko and he stands up and proclaims that greed is good. Some people have seem to think that that's a proxy for Smith. But this is the advantage, again, of going back to the theory of moral sentiments. You don't even have to finish the first sentence to realize that that caricature doesn't even begin to capture what's at stake here. So I really like this line because it reminds us of the other side of Smith, our interest in others. But I especially like this line because of the strong claim it makes. We don't just have some sort of vague, disinterested, altruistic sense. Okay, it's nice to feel something for others. Smith's language is really unique and precise there. The happiness of others is, quote unquote, necessary to us. I've spent a lot of time trying to wrestle with what Smith might mean by that. But in some deep sense, not only hardwired are we to care that others are doing okay, their happiness matters
0: to us and matters to such an extent that it's necessary to us. Can I just ask there, I mean, is the idea that even our self-interest... Is bound up in our interests in others. Yeah, and I love the way that you put it because
1: you know in contemporary social science, we always talk about the differences, you know, egoism and altruism, self-directedness and other directedness. And here Smith from the First Sense is subverting that easy paradigm of, of bifurcation in human nature. We are simultaneously interested in ourselves, and we are interested in others. It's not as if there are two different directions here. These are almost, in some ways, two sides of the same coin, as it were. And that is the beginning of a rich set of speculations that Smith develops out of yeah. this. What is the Adam Smith
0: problem in the philosophical world? So, we've mentioned that Smith wrote these two books
1: The Theory of Moral Sentiments, Wealth of Nations. One book, the famous book, The Wealth of Nations, is all about I never want to presume anything, but at least on the popular discussion. You know, it's a defensive commercial society built upon self-interest. And then the other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, it's a book that, as we've just been discussing, presents itself as having to do with our concern for others. This all comes under the heading of Smith's opening chapters on the concept of what he calls sympathy. And on some very basic level, sympathy doesn't seem to be like self-interest. And so in the late 19th century, a group of German scholars wrestled with this question and came to the conclusion, there seems to be a tension here. Here's a man who wrote one book about sympathy, another book about self-interest. How do we put them together? And they coined, and you don't need to have a lot of German to be able to parse (laughs) what Das Adam Smith Problem means, but the Adam Smith problem is, how do these two things go together? And a lot of ink has been spilled Mm. over the years Mm. on this particular problem. We're starting to come out of that a little Mm. bit. I can't but resist. I had the good fortune yesterday of participating in a panel for another new book. The 2002 Nobel Prize winner in economics, Vernon Smith, Mm -hmm. co-authored an extraordinary book with the economist Bart Wilson called Humanomics. They go through their experimental economics for which Vernon won the Nobel Prize, but Vernon always credits Adam. And saying the richness of understanding the ways in which we are not simply self-interested in a selfish sense, but precisely this way in which our interests in pursuing our own interests are deeply tied to our interests in others and the moral sentiments. So. We're moving past the das Problem, thanks in large part to both economists like Vernon, as well
0: as moral philosophers that have been trying to figure out in a thick way how these go together. Okay. So that's a great segue to kind of beginning the process of understanding. I mean, obviously, Theory of Moral Sentiments is a long book. It's not not as long as The Wealth of Nations, but it's still a long book. It's something he revised many times during his life. It's complex, inexhaustible in some ways. But walk us through kind of what are the core elements of Smith's moral psychology as he presents them in Theory of Moral Sentiments?
1: Sure. So the Theory of Moral Sentiments begins with a discussion of, as I mentioned before, sympathy. Today, we often use the word empathy to describe the precise phenomenon that Smith is describing. But I think the word sympathy actually captures something for Smith. And the something that it's trying to capture is the idea of fellow feeling. So Smith believes that we are fundamentally sympathetic human beings. That is, we're made in such a way that we feel what other people around us feel. When we see them feeling miserable, we feel a degree of misery. When we see them feeling joyful, we feel a degree of their joy. Not exactly the same, not perhaps to the same pitch that they do, and that's important. But Smith does think that we're made that way to feel what other people are feeling. And I mentioned why that word sympathy matters so much is that, so Smith was, he had great Greek and Latin in ways that are very difficult for us today to appreciate the way 18th century scholars were trained. And sympathy is sort of the Greek word that means the same thing that the Latin derived word compassion means and they both mean literally feeling with some patea compassion both of them have exactly that same sort of idea of feeling with the other person and that's a little different from how we think about maybe sympathy today sympathy f- sounds a little bit more like pity perhaps which feeling for another person and that has some connotations potentially of being a
0: little bit even condescending, so, so it has kind of this idea of entering into the emotional life of another person, even if it isn't exactly the same. But you have this—you aren't standing away, pitying, saying "poor you," but tell me more, help me understand more about what you're what you're experiencing. Is that... Yeah, exactly. We talk sometimes today about putting ourselves in other
1: people's shoes. Mm-hmm. And that has a sense of what Smith is after here. It's not just a one-directional thing where we're from a distance trying to imagine what they might be feeling. It's really an entering into, and that's one of Smith's favorite phrases. So it's not a distant fellow feeling. It's an entering into, coming closer. Again, not feeling exactly what other people feel, but we're inclined to make that
0: effort to move into and to enter into. So when someone else smiles at us we tend to smile back. When someone is emotional and maybe starting to cry, we feel ourselves sort of welling up. That kind of emotional exchange.
1: I only say this because the the book that I wrote is dedicated to my daughter, who is now a, a high schooler. But I remember really understanding Smithian sympathy from exactly what you described when she was an infant. And I remember going out to restaurants at the time, and she'd be sat in her high chair, and there would be a couple next to us, and they'd be laughing and giggling. And I looked at her face, and it was an instant reflection, smiling. And so that would be what Smith calls a natural reaction. She wasn't taught you're supposed to feel good for other people when they're smiling. There's something deep in her nature. And I think all... I don't, I don't think that she's special from other children. I, she's wonderful. She's <laughs> Paige, I love you. But in that respect, I think it's a very human and universal
0: response that she was exhibiting. It's exactly what Smith was describing. Okay. So that's one key element. Can you talk a little bit about the impartial spectator function and how that fits in with the sympathetic function? Yeah.
1: Right. So as Smith develops in the theory of moral sentiments and as he goes through and develops his argument in its several parts, he comes in time to the concept of the impartial spectator. And the impartial spectator in some ways comes out of his earlier discussions of sympathy. So what we've just been talking about is the way in which we're inclined to feel what other people are feeling, the ways in which we're inclined to be sensitive to their reactions, to their judgments of us even. And so Smith thinks that in exchanges of sympathy, we come closer to other people. We want their sympathy in addition to wanting to sympathize with them. Now, that in many ways is a good thing. It helps us feel what other people are feeling. But there's also challenges involved in that, right? If if indeed we're going through life hardwired in such a way as just to feel what other people feel, well, that doesn't leave any room, at least on its face, for being able to judge whether what other people are feeling is right or wrong. Presumably, there are instances in which there are emotions that are being felt that we don't want to replicate, that are improper, that are even perhaps abhorrent. And what Smith recognizes is we can't simply be creatures of feeling, going through life always feeling what other people feel. That's a necessary point of departure. But what's also important is for us to Cultivate the capacity to stand back a bit, to be able to separate ourselves just from our feelings, to be able to exercise our reason and judgment, to occupy what he calls this impartial standpoint of a spectator who is looking, judging, reflecting upon these feelings that they are simultaneously having. So Smith uses the language of dividing ourselves in two. We're simultaneously feeling, watching, spectating in the world, but then we're also standing back from ourselves and watching, reflecting on our own feelings and beginning to judge those, what might be appropriate, what might be inappropriate. And so there is an interesting mechanism of balance then built into this theory of moral sentiments sentiments are the beginning but sentiment sensation feeling it's a departure point it's not the whole also built in is the capacity to stand back for ourselves to reason to be able to judge
0: right and wrong right and and that has to be that also has to be a function of sort of the social inter- process of social interaction we learn from the way other people are responding to us that's helping to educate our own impartial spectator so that we're able to say oh that's my feelings are not aligned to the circumstances you know i need to, i need to constrain myself in some to some degree in order to enter more fully into society yeah
1: and no, i think that captures something very important which is that for smith you know we've been talking a lot about nature and we are made in a certain way but smith is also a wonderful theorist of human development he recognizes that even though we're born made with certain inclinations, certain predispositions, those can take a variety of different forms based on our context, our upbringing, our acculturation. And so, Smith is deeply invested in the idea that in a healthy and flourishing society built of healthy, flourishing individuals, that these need to be cultivated and developed in ways that are appropriate for that society and for those beings. And so, I think that idea of learning is really
0: important for Smith. I mean, to me, raises some questions, some pretty challenging questions about what we do in a society in which, I mean, Smith describes this as a mirror, you know, like when the mirrors are broken, you've got a lot of broken mirrors Uh that are not feeding back to you either a positive message or that you're observing active negative behavior as being normative. Uh That creates some challenges, don't you think? It seems to have some implications for social policy, in my estimation.
1: Yeah, you know, I can't help but say this is a sort of, and maybe this is because I'm a college professor dealing with 18 to 22 year olds, or because I'm the parent of a teenager. But our, you know, world is going through this remarkable social experiment in social media these uncharted waters. So when I hear you talk about broken mirrors, I can't help but think of the screens and especially the one-way dimensionality of the screens and the ways in which we present ourselves. I mean, think of Smith's theory, the way we've just been describing it. It's all about acting in the world and it's a two-way street. We see how other people are judging us. We're judging them. We're watching them. They're watching us. And there's these feedback loops that happen and they're healthy watching other people's faces as clues to figure out how to react and so smith thinks that we are really built this way and there seems to be i'm not i don't do facial recognition studies but it seems like a lot of people are doing work that anticipate or that suggests that smith anticipated this but this i mentioned the social media stuff only because now the medium for communicating the feedback has changed dramatically in one way it opens up all kinds of opportunities, globally dispersed. It's no longer just who you see in your own environment. You're now be able to give content and get feedback on content from people all over the world. But those signals are very different from the sorts of signals that Smith thinks our minds, our brains have been developed to try to handle. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of Technology is wonderful, and there's all kinds of, I, mean, I don't have any interest in playing the Luddite. But on this particular question of how we synthesize through our interchanges with others, it seems to me that the screen that is our mechanism for many of us going through the world now to get feedback really
0: is something like the broken mirror that you're describing. That's a great segue to my next question, really, which is this podcast is called Hardly Working. The idea here is that we're trying to help people understand ideas of vocation and calling and as well as career and work. Part of our work and our study relates to trying to analyze what it is that employers think they want and trying to communicate that to people like these are the things you need to develop if you're going to be an active participant in the labor market. We've had for decades now this concept of the skills gap, you know, like there's a gap between what the economy is demanding and what individuals have. Hmm. And typically the response to the skills gap has been technical training, right? We need people who know how to do certain things. That are technical in nature. You know, we need more people who know how to operate machinery. We need more people who know how to program a computer. We need more, you know, we need people with very specific technical skills. It turns out when you talk to employers, that's not quite what they mean when they talk about the skills gap. When you ask particularly people who lead organizations, businesses, what's missing, they come back with what are called, depending on the domain of study, they either soft skills or non-cognitive skills or implicit skills or professional skills, interpersonal, social, emotional, everybody's got a different word for it. But it's that idea of how we connect and relate to other people. So I guess my question is, what would Adam Smith say about that problem? That if the biggest problem in our economy is that we don't have enough people who can relate to other people, what would he say about that?
1: I love it. I love it for a variety of different reasons, both because it resonates with my own personal experience and it resonates with something that I've been thinking about in Smith. As far as my personal experience, I had the good fortune, well, I have the bad fortune of spending too much time on (laughs) airplanes, but I had the good fortune of having a great seat neighbor. I usually don't talk on planes, but this particular time, an executive from one of the larger tech companies. And I, I figured it was a good opportunity to ask you know, I, I advise these undergraduates who are going out into the workforce. What is it that you're looking for? Mm. And she didn't bat an eyelash. Instantly, it was writing skills. Mm. She came back immediately with writing skills, and I was, to say the least, very surprised. I mean, I, I I spent a lot of time trying to cultivate my students' writing skills, but she said we need people that can communicate, and right now we're not getting kids that communicate very well. Mm-hmm. And so that led to a longer conversation, in, indeed, about screens, but but hypothesizing as to why, but. I mean, that, that speaks to exactly the point that you're describing, which is the written communication is one form of communication, but this idea of being able to deliver your ideas in a compelling and concise way, this is a really integral part of not just what employers want, but what education should be providing. You know, there's all kinds of contemporary questions built into this. Like maybe some of your listeners I've been fascinated to follow in the Wall Street Journal over the past couple of months, they've been breaking down not just universities by income return on investment, but also individual majors return on investment. And that seems it could potentially feed into the idea of, look, you want to garner as many, you know, marketable skills as you can while you're in college. But there's that other side. It seems that at least some of the employers, prominent employers, want communicative skills. Yeah. And so, it's hardly the case that you can't develop those. I, cer- I, I don't teach in an econ department or an engineering school. I certainly have every reason to believe that they do teach those to some degree. But for Smith, I'll bring this back mm-hmm. to Smith now, these were front and center. Mm-hmm. The idea of being able to communicate well was so foundational to his enterprise. I'll give an example how. I mentioned Smith was a professor of moral philosophy. He was, but it wasn't his first gig, as it were. Mm. His first gig after he finished his schooling, so he went to Glasgow as an undergrad, then he got a fellowship to go to Oxford, and he was there for six years, said he didn't learn very much at Oxford. There wasn't a whole lot of good teaching there, so he spent his time in the library. But he came back to Edinburgh, the capital really of what was then known as the Scottish Enlightenment, the flourishing, polite civilization growing up in North Britain. And he gets a patron, offers him an opportunity to deliver some public lectures. And the lectures are on the subject of rhetoric and oratory. And these are not university students attending these lectures, but young men, what we would think of today as the professional class outside of the university in the public square in Edinburgh. Why were they so drawn to lectures on oratory and rhetoric. And why was Smith so invested in teaching these? Well, it has to do with what he believes is at the heart of a commercial civilization, which is built upon exchange. And he tells us again and again that trucking and bartering persuasion in the market, these are his words, are all built upon exchange. And speech is the mechanism of exchange. And for a society in which we hope to trade well, we need to be able to speak well. We need to be able to deliver our understanding of our not just our thoughts and our abstract thoughts, but to be able to communicate wants, desires, and needs. And so built into Smith's own theory of commercial civilization is that it is very much a world in which communication, thought development, thought communication, speech is really central. And having those skills is in 18th century, late 18th century, North Britain, absolutely essential for success. I suspect not so different from 21st century America. And so this is not a plea for the humanities and the higher education, though I think that plea needs to be made. But I do think that the education we provide can't simply be information communication and skill development of that sort. But this idea that was so central to Smith, and he was so invested in giving his own students, of the capacity to be able to
0: communicate. It's interesting. I was at a conference A few weeks ago at the Hoover Institution on artificial intelligence and what they call human centered artificial intelligence. And they had a speaker who's former leader of a major high tech firm. I won't name which one, but he talked about how critical his training and philosophy was to founding and growing this now massive high tech concern because it helped him to communicate his Uh ideas and to interact with his colleagues to, you know, that there was this process of exchange that had to happen in a team-based working environment in order to build this now massive global enterprise uh-huh. that he that he has. It was interesting to me that the first thing he mentioned was I was trained, I had some training in philosophy that facilitated all of this, all right? So, it was both the ideas of the philosophy, but I think it was also how you learn philosophy. You don't learn it in isolation necessarily, you learn it actually in the world. And that I gather from your book is an important concept for Smith as well. Absolutely. What advice do you think Smith would give to a young man or a young woman who's preparing to enter commercial life? What do you think he would say to them? Especially as it relates to kind of like Smith's thinking about the active versus the contemplative and how we blend those things.
1: I think the first thing that has to be said is I suspect he'd give them a pat on the back and say, good for you. Mm. I mean, I, I think that that has to be said that Smith, the professor of moral philosophy, wasn't trying to simply educate the next generation of moral philosophers. Mm. He was trying to educate men and women who are going to, well, in his case, men, Mm, but I think we can carry his spirit forward today into a world of educating men and women for the world. So I think that the pursuits of commerce, trade, business, finance is a world that Smith welcomed and, of course, wanted the best and brightest to, to, to pursue. That said, I think after he would say something like good for you, I can imagine a quick chat saying, remember some of the things we talked about in seminar at Mm. the same time, which include especially the idea that as one pursues one's self-interest in the marketplace, which Smith again thinks is a necessary, natural, absolutely healthy part of what it means to live a human existence, to be able to provide for oneself he would also probably say something to the effect of, don't forget that there's more to it than just that. Mm. And so this, what Smith likes to use the language, he uses it both in The Wealth of Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiments, he calls it bettering our condition, the desire to better our condition. And that's what drives, as he describes it, our enterprises in the market to try and rise in rank and fortune to gain the esteem of others through pursuits of wealth and status. and Smith thinks that these can be healthy when done in a certain way. But there has to be a certain sense of perspective. There has to be a certain sense of, this would be one of Smith's words, virtue in pursuing these. That there are ways in which one can engage in these pursuits that are both healthy for oneself and healthy for others. And there are also ways to go after these sorts of things that are deeply unhealthy to oneself and unhealthy to others.
0: And he kind of lays that out in these two parables, right? The sort of the poor man's son and the beggar. Beggar by the side of the road. Why don't you talk about those for a little bit?
1: Yeah. There's this absolutely wonderful, it comes right in the middle of the theory of moral sentiments. So it's part four, where he tells this story and parable is really the right way to think about it. And it's the story of he calls him this memorable figure, quote, the poor man's son whom heaven in its anger has visited with ambition. It's really a remarkable way to begin the story. And, you know, I imagine when Smith gave these
0: lectures to his students, their so ears kind of ambition out. as a curse. Is, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he, he tells the story of this particular figure. This is a young man on the make, a young man, the son of a poor man, a man who comes from Little, who wants to rise. And this is It wasn't an unfamiliar story in 18th century Scotland. It's not an unfamiliar story in 21st century America. It becomes, though, in Smith's hands, something of a warning. That is to say, this young man who's trying to climb the ladder, rise in the ranks, he's a hard worker. But it comes at a cost. All of this energy that he expends towards trying to rise in the ranks ultimately causes him, Smith uses the language, to sacrifice his tranquility, to give up what he could have right now for in a distant future that he might never get. And so this poor man's son runs the risk of playing the long game, trying, hoping that in the long distance... End of his life is the way Smith describes this, that he might get the happiness he seeks. But unfortunately, it ends unhappily. He doesn't get this. Smith says that at the end of his life, he comes to look back, saying, "I kind of wish I had done it differently." And so, what's the takeaway from that? I mean, it's a very complex story with several takeaways. Here's one of the most interesting parts: is that that story becomes the introduction to Smith's use of his most famous phrase, "bar none, the invisible hand. He only mentions the invisible hand, that's what it's associated with Smith, but he only mentions it twice in all of his writings, his two published books at least, once in The Theory of Moral Sentiments and once in The Wealth of Nations. In The Theory of Moral Sentiments, it comes right on the heels of this poor man's son. And the invisible hand there is described as having made a distribution of the necessaries of life. Specifically, it's a distribution that provides roughly the same equal share, these are all Smith's words, as what nature itself would have provided of the necessaries of life. And so the invisible hand is a tool of distribution of basic wealth. Now, that's a very interesting and egalitarian phenomenon. It's not necessarily what we tend to associate with the invisible hand when we think of free markets and trade, but that is Smith's original first mention. It's really to provide the benefits of the market, To provide the material opulence, especially to the least well off among us. Now, the irony is that that comes precisely on the heels of the poor man's son, and it's precisely because of what the poor man's son did that made that extraordinary thing happen. So, after he tells the story of the poor man's son and all the misery that came with that life, he tells us that it is well that nature imposes upon us and even, quote, deceives us in the way that it's deceived the poor man's son. Remember, he's been deceived into thinking that he'll get that happiness at the end of his life that was always evasive. But it's good. It's good for all of us that the Mm. poor man's son is deceived. Mm. Why? Because that's the engine of commercial growth. Mm. That's what made possible the invisible hand and the distribution of necessities. If we all just sat there by the side of the highway, like Mm. you mentioned that beggar that Smith mentions, then what would happen? without any incentives to pursue our self-interest, to say the very least, we wouldn't have the sort of beneficial growth that Smith thinks we all necessarily come away better
0: off for. What I find particularly interesting about that is that it highlights, it highlights kind of the sacrificial nature of being the poor man's son. I mean, that he doesn't realize he's making the sacrifice. He's making enormous sacrifices that he he can't see because he's so focused on his mm-hmm. ambition you know, he did not intend to sacrifice himself for our benefit, right? But he did. It sort of puts a different spin on the attack on billionaires, in uh-huh. a sense, because yes, they've gained much, but they have lost much in gaining that. So anyway, there's a trade-off there that that isn't appreciated, I
1: think. No, I, that's great. I mean, Smith, we talk about the lifestyles of the rich and famous today. Yeah. S- Smith often it gives portraits of the great He says that even as we worship them, that's his word, and it, it again, really anticipates something very familiar to our culture today. He also wants us to know that not all that glitters is gold Mm -hmm. and that sometimes what seems to be these dazzling exteriors sometimes belie lives that may not be quite
0: so happy once we look at them. So in one of our first, in fact, our very first episode, we interviewed a man from the UK. His name is Ian McGilchrist. He taught literature at Oxford and then he got discouraged with teaching literature and it's related to what he did next. He, he was concerned about sort of the reductive nature of the way literature was being taught and he, he had this intuition that there was something going on inside people that led them to want to study literature in a way that kind of robbed it of its beauty. So he decided to become a psychiatrist. He's written a really interesting book, and he's developed some interesting insights about how the structure of the brain actually guides interpersonal exchange. I've described Smith as a neuroscientist before brain scans. He saw it. I mean, he wouldn't have any idea about brain scans and neuroscience. But I'm curious, in your work, have you looked at whether and how Smith's work kind of prefigures what science is currently teaching us about how the brain works? So I'm really glad that you asked that because we've
1: been using the language, Smith's language of natural, and I've been interpreting that as hardwired. But I do think that that captures something that neuroscientists now actually are recognizing and seeing that all this stuff about feeling what other people are feeling, there are people out there doing fMRI brain scans that recognize that there's certain things happening in the prefrontal cortex that are not unanticipated by Smith. There was a few years ago, there was a big flurry of interest in what were being called mirror neurons, the idea that there are certain neurons. So we're back to mirrors again. Smith, well, exactly yeah, right. That's no, yeah. interesting. The idea that we have certain neurons within us that take in sensory perception and mirror the sorts of feelings that we see in others. And that, of course, if that were true, that would be exactly, we've been able to pinpoint in the brain where some yeah. of sympathy happens. As a non-expert in neuroscience, I can't comment, but I do know that there have been some questions raised about whether mirror neurons are quite exactly mm-hmm. what maybe some of the initial founders had, had had thought of them. However,
0: that may be this idea that... It's an associated idea. I mean, even if it's not exactly scientifically the same function, it's kind of analogous to it anyway. So. Um, and, and I
1: think that the sort of work that's done in the spirit of how are we made? And what is it that our brains are doing when they take in sensory perception? And how does that manifest itself in thought, feeling, and action? To the degree to which neuroscience is able to test that, I mean, I think that those are exactly Smith's questions. And it wouldn't be surprising, not just because I think Smith gets a lot of things right, but because of the ways in which other scientific fields have been able to test some of his ideas. Just to go back, we mentioned Vernon Smith and experimental Mm -hmm. economics. That behavioralists and experimentalists are finding that Smith anticipated human behavior in a remarkable variety of ways. If there's a physiological link to that, that would be
0: a very interesting question to develop. Wrap up question here, and I want to kind of pull up to maybe the twenty thousand foot level. And this is a little bit of a vanity question, but you know, there's this this raging debate within conservatism right now between those who take a Smithian line mm. on the economy that a free mm. economy winds up getting us the best result. And those who are saying, wait a second, the market, I think that Smith would agree with this. the market does create negative externalities that mm-hmm. we have to be aware of, but people saying you know we, there's a common good aspect to the to economic activity that's mm-hmm. been neglected and it's been neglected because of this kind of market fundamentalism. You talk about in your book the trade-off between material benefits and moral costs. Mm-hmm. Explain that a little bit and then what do you think Smith would make of today's debate between these sort of they're not exactly different perspectives. It's a weird thing because the people who are in disagreement have been in agreement for decades and have only mm-hmm. recently mm-hmm. discovered that they're in disagreement. So anyway, talk about the moral costs and material benefits question. So
1: what is Smith? Can we give him a label? People have tried to for a long time. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah, well, and so you know, is he a libertarian, free market fundamentalist, or is he a conservative? Yeah. Is he is he a traditionalist? Is he you know as you're discussing common good? he's a Smithian. I mean, that's the easy answer. At the end of the day, he's his own man. That's one of the things that I love so much about him. And that makes me go back to the 18th century as an alternative for many of these challenges that we, we, you know, we live in a polarized age. And indeed, we have sometimes infighting even within this polarization. And I think that Smith's a unifier. How does one say it other than that? What makes Smith remarkable, I think, is that he's sensitive to both sides of the question without trying to privilege one over the other. That is to say. For Smith, in a well-functioning, what he called commercial society, so it's not even simply a market order, certainly not capitalism, a word that comes much later, in a commercial society, that commercial society is simultaneously a market-driven system and a system that works for the common good. It is simultaneously a system built on self-interest that, when functioning healthily, depends upon and cultivates virtue. If Smith were here and we were to say, aren't these fundamentally at variance with each other? He would say, they can be. Yes, sometimes the common good is in conflict with the pursuit of self-interest. Yes, sometimes these work in disaccord. But in the vision that he's describing, the pole star he's laying out for us, what he himself calls the system of natural liberty, which is, I think he would say, an idealization. In that well-functioning order that he's hoping to have us approximate, there aren't simply these sorts of concerns that we have to privilege one or the other. There rather is a virtuous circle, as it were, in which these ideas are not intention, but are assumed to be healthily intricated with each other. Now, how does that process work? We'd have to do a lot of Smith, and I I would encourage your listeners, the best way to get into this is to read the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations next to each other. But among the many things that we take away from that, I think is a vision of the good society that very few on either side of the debate that you describe would be inclined to reject out of hand, which is a healthy balance, recognizing the
0: legitimacy and need for both of these sides. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous. I can't recommend the book highly enough to anybody who wants to pick it up. One of the things that I like about the book most is that the chapters are very short. <laughs> and Bedtime um, reading. Bedtime reading, happen. and yet give you a tremendous amount to chew on, both while you're reading it and afterwards. So I, I hope everyone will go out and buy it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the kind words, as well as the great questions. It's really been a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.